welcome our college students back today as they come back from their travels and their time home. Um, so uh, we've got USF students here and UT students here and HCC students here, but uh, I've got one that's now at USF and one that is starting at UT tomorrow, and I love my UT2 students, so I thought I'd represent a little bit of UT today and just welcome you guys back. Love our college students. Thank you, guys. Parents, if you're here with your uh, freshmen dropping them off, we would love to take care of your kids and just make sure that they have a church home while they're in Tampa. So thank you so much for joining us in worship. Hey, take out your copy of God's Word. Open it up. Turn it on, however you brought it with me, and join me. We're going to be in two passages this morning, just briefly in Acts chapter 11, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our times in Rome, time in Romans chapter 6. So Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, if you don't have one, uh, there are some in the pew back there in front of you. And Acts chapter 11 is on page 102, and Romans is on page 122 in that Bible in the back section. So Rome, excuse me, Acts chapter 11, verse 26 simply says this, that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You say, that seems like a simple statement. Let's unpack that just for a minute because we have to understand the context. The book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit empowering the church to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the other most parts of the world. It is how the gospel spread from a group of about 120 people to 3,000 people to 5,000 people to beyond 10,000 and then ultimately taking it to the world. By the time we get to Acts chapter 11, the gospel has spread into an area called Asia Minor, into a little town called Antioch. There, some of the believers had the audacity to take the gospel and share it with Gentiles. And Gentiles began to be saved. As a matter of fact, large numbers of Gentiles began to give their heart to Jesus Christ. And Barnabas was so excited about this, this one who encouraged many to come to Christ, that he went and found the Apostle Paul, and he brought the Apostle Paul to Antioch. And together, the two of them spent a year in this city just discipling these believers. And the church began to grow, and the church began to intentionally send out missionaries into the world. But it's here at Antioch that the disciples became distinguished. By that I mean this. The people that were part of the church in the Antioch became distinguished from those that weren't a part of the church in Antioch. Those who had accepted Christ acted differently than those who had not. And as a result, the people around the city began to notice those people that are hanging out in that group, sometimes referred to as the way, those people that are claiming that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, they look unique, they act unique, they talk differently, they are different than we are. We're going to call them Christians because they represent Christ. They looked differently. Their identity became that of Christ. They were identified with Christ. That seems simple, right? And yet how profound that is. Should it not be true that you and I, our identity should be wrapped around the name Jesus Christ? Our world, unfortunately, right now is suffering from identity confusion. As our students come back to college 
Some of our colleges and universities across the country have begun to adopt what they call gender-neutral pronouns. They are doing away with words such as he and she and him and her and her and his. According to the Boston Globe, Harvard University is, quote, is allowing students to choose their preferred gender pronoun from a list including such gender-neutral identifiers as Z, higher, and hers, end quote. Students can choose on their application to say, I don't want to be identified as a he, I don't want to be identified as a she, I want to be identified as a zer. In addition to that, writing style guides that our students are being given to say, this is how you write a paper. Many schools are moving away from gender-specific pronouns and saying, you don't use he and she, you use they, whether in the singular or the plural now. Our world is being deceived into experiencing an identity crisis. Our identity is who we are. Our identity is our gender. It is our qualities. It is who we are. But some today are experiencing what is known as gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is a discomfort or distress when a supposed mismatch happens between your sexual gender and your self-identified gender. You have a mismatch. Most would probably understand that humans are created male and female. Well, that's called the gender binary. And in our world today, that is a very closed-minded view of what people are. Instead of the gender binary, the world today is telling us that there is a gender spectrum ranging from masculinity to femininity and all ports in between. Sometimes it's referred to as the infinite gender or the gender and LGBTQ plus spectrum. Now hear me very carefully. I am not here to cast stones at anyone who is suffering from gender identity confusion or gender dysphoria, that is not my role, that is not our role to do so. Our role is to love all people. Our role is to take the gospel to all. Our role is to let them know that Jesus Christ loves them. I'm not here to pick on anybody or call anyone out. I'm just here today to broach this topic of identity. If you're interested, by the way, in discussing how this impacts us, uh, in two weeks we're going to be starting a new sermon series entitled 2020 Vision, where we look at the concept of worldview. What does it mean to have a worldview? Because everyone has one. A worldview is how you look at the world. It's the lens through which you understand how the world began, how the world operates, and where the world is going. Everyone has a worldview. Whether they acknowledge it, whether they know it, whether they understand it or not, everyone has one. And as Christ followers, as Christians, we ought to have a biblical worldview. The lens through which we understand how the world came into existence, what is happening in our world and where it's going, must be filtered through the Bible. We must have a biblical worldview. And so in two weeks, we're going to start a series of messages on what is a biblical worldview, what does it mean to have a biblical worldview, and we will address some of these issues that are up in our culture today and how we as Christians should approach them. One of those will be identity, but that's for another time.
topic in another time. But today, I just want to talk about identity. Because unfortunately, not, is, not only is the world struggling with some identity crisis, I'm afraid there are many within the church who are struggling with identity crisis. There are many within the body of Christ, within the church, who struggle with this concept of identity. The church, I would define it as the redeemed of the world. These are the ones who have heard the truth of the gospel. They have been convicted by the truth of the gospel. They have trusted in Jesus Christ. They have sought his forgiveness, and now they are living for him. This is what constitutes the church. It's not a denomination. It's not a religious organization. It is the body of Christ coming together, and there should be a clear distinction between those who are in the church and those who are not in the church. There should be a clear distinction between those who are claiming the name of Christ and those who are not claiming the name of Christ. The world ought to look at us and go, you are different, much like they did to the church in Antioch and said, those people represent Jesus Christ. However, if I were to ask most believers who they are, hi, I'm Bob. Who are you? Most believers are going to begin to answer with their name and probably their occupation. Or maybe their relationship, a relationship with a spouse or a friend or a grandchild. I dare say that very few would identify ourselves, hi, I'm Bob, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I dare say that most of us would not start a description of our identity with, I'm a born-again child of God. And yet, apart from our identity in Christ, who are we? Apart from what Christ has done from us, who are we? Because Christ dying for us, Christ creating us, loving us, redeeming us, sustaining us, and coming back for us, everything about us flows out of that. And it's a great tragedy when, as Christ followers, we don't know who we are. Now, we may be genuine Christ followers. I'm not claiming that if you don't introduce yourself every time as I am a sinner saved by grace, that you're somehow not a genuine follower. That's not what I'm saying. But Christian should not just be another adjective I add to my resume. Christian should not just be another one of the elements of who I am. No, it should be a defining nature. This is who I am. But the bottom line, most of us would define ourselves by our job, our relationships, our possessions, rather than our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if someone asks you who you are and nowhere in the conversation the name Jesus Christ comes up, you might be struggling with an identity crisis as a Christ follower. You cannot talk about you without talking about him. So how do we identify with Christ? There are many ways. We can wear clothing that identifies us with Christ, but that doesn't necessarily make it true, does it? We can talk with our words. We can identify ourselves with Christ. We can do so by our actions, by how we treat one another, by how we love one another, by the good deeds that we do. And when somebody says, why did you do such a nice thing? We can point them to our Savior, Jesus Christ. There are many things that we can do with our lives to identify ourselves with Christ so that when people look at us, they go, you're different than everybody else. What makes you different? I'm glad you asked. 
But within the body of Christ, God has given us two commands as a church to help us identify with him. Two ordinances that he has given to the church that identify believers with Jesus Christ. We observed one this morning, baptism. We'll observe the other next week, Lord's Supper. And this morning, I just want us to talk about believers' baptism. What is it, and how does it help us to identify with Christ? Because there's many different views on baptism. The name of our church, the church you are a part of right now, which, by the way, is not a building. It's a gathering of called-out believers. That's the church. This building could burn down tomorrow. I know it's been here 100 years, but it could burn down tomorrow, and First Baptist Church Tampa would still continue to exist because the church is not this beautiful building. The church is this collection of beautiful people. But the name by which we go is First Baptist Church of Tampa. We're called Baptist because Baptist is very important to us. We see great value in baptism. But having said that, I also need to say that it is incredibly important for us to acknowledge that some would put too much emphasis on baptism. Baptism is important, but we can overemphasize baptism. For some groups, for some churches, for some denominations, they believe that baptism is somehow part of salvation. In other words, they would say, in order for you to be right with God, in order for you to be saved, in order for you to go to heaven, you must be baptized. They would refer this to this as a sacrament. A sacrament is something that must be done in order for God to confer his favor on someone. It is something that must be observed. It is a rite or a ritual which, when observed, God then gives you favor. In the Baptist church, however, we don't believe that baptism is a sacrament. We don't believe that you must be baptized in order to be saved. We believe that baptism is an ordinance. We don't believe that there's any act of man that can cause God to give us favor. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is 100% a gift from God that we must simply receive by faith. Baptism, we believe, is not an act by which we are saved. It is an ordinance, and an ordinance is a picture. It is a symbol of something that's already happened. An ordinance is a demonstration of one's faith. It is a symbolic reenactment of the gospel. So let me just reiterate that. An ordinance is a picture of salvation. Sacrament is a requirement for salvation. All right? So there are some groups that believe you must be baptized in order to be right with God. We do not believe that. We believe that the Bible teaches that we are saved by grace through faith and that baptism is a picture of what Christ has done for us, what Christ did, what he has done for us. It is an act of obedience, and it is a public profession of our faith, but it does not save us. This morning, just four truths about baptism in our time together, just four truths that I want to share with you uh, today, and we're going to turn to Romans 6 here in just a moment. The first is this, and I've already mentioned it. Baptism is a portrait. It is a picture of salvation. In, a in addition to different denominations believing different things about, but what, about what baptism is, they also believe different ways about how baptism should be carried out. 
In other words, the mode of baptism. How should someone be baptized? Some practice by sprinkling water on top of the head. Some pour water on top of the head. Some baptize infants shortly after they're born. Some wait until uh, they are adults or some wait until they make a public profession. What is the proper mode for baptism? As you observed this morning, we do not sprinkle nor pour. We practice what is called uh, baptism by immersion. That means we take somebody into a big body of water and we completely put them under the water and then we bring them back up. Now, if you've never experienced baptism before, if this was your first baptism, you were probably sitting there going, well, that's interesting, that's new, I hadn't seen that before. Come back next week for Lord's Supper, you'll be asking some questions then uh, when we observe the Lord's Supper and we drink the blood and eat the body of Christ. If you're new to this thing, you're wondering, who are these weirdos and what have I walked into? <laughs> we practice by immersion, which means we completely submerge the person and bring them back up. We do so because it paints a picture. First of all, the word baptize is a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse or to dunk. In secular use, it was used to describe a boat that would be sunk underneath water. And so we baptize by immersion, first of all, because that's what the word literally means. It literally means to submerge. And so it is a picture, it is a depiction of what the word means. So we baptize because of that. But it also appears that the early church, as we read through the scriptures, they practiced baptism by immersion. When we read in the New Testament, we see people going down into bodies of water and coming back up out of those bodies of water. It seems to be the model by which the early church practiced baptism. We see this with Jesus' baptism with John the Baptist. We see this with John the Baptist in the book of Acts, and we see this with uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip in the book of Acts. Over and over again, people going down into bodies of water and coming back up. But even more than that, we practice by immersion because it paints a picture of what Christ has done. It paints a picture of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it paints a picture for us, a spiritual picture of our death to our sin nature, our burial with Christ, and the promise of our resurrection also in Christ. You've turned to Romans chapter 6. Let me show you what I mean from this wonderful passage. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ uh, Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Paul, as he's writing to the church in Rome, is asking some very pointed questions. He says, what are we to say then? 
If we've been covered by grace, then shouldn't we just keep on sinning? Because the more we sin, the more God pours his grace out on us. And the more God pours his grace out on us, isn't that a better thing? Isn't God glorified more when I sin and he gives grace all the more? So he says, shouldn't we just keep on continuing so that the grace may continue on increasing? But he answers his own question, doesn't he? And his answer is what? May it never be. Absolutely not. God is not glorified in my sinning. And when I understand the cost of what it took to take away my sin, I should never desire to continue in my sin. No, I shouldn't sin so that grace would increase more and more. And then he follows up with this question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Christ follower, did you know that you died to sin when you gave your heart to Jesus Christ? Did you know that sin no longer has the grip on you that it had on you before you gave your life to Christ? Did you know that God took your sin and he nailed it to the cross when he nailed Jesus to the cross? Do you know that your sin nature died with Jesus Christ upon the cross? He says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Now, in order to fully understand this, we have to understand the book of Romans. The first three chapters of the book of Romans are all about condemnation. It's all about Paul telling the church, we are all sinners, I don't care who you are, Jew, Gentile, rich or poor, doesn't matter, male or female, wherever you are, whoever you are, we are all sinners. None of us can save ourselves. None of us are right before God, and none of us can stand before him with an adequate excuse to say we didn't know he existed and we didn't know what sin was. It's all about condemnation. But then you get to chapter 4, and he begins to explain salvation. He begins to explain justification, and that that justification, how we are sinful people who are made right with a holy God, isn't as a result of our own works. It's as a result of God's works, what he has done for us. And he begins to explain that in chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, he begins to help us to understand the results of this grace-faith relationship justification, peace with God. But that peace that we now have with God because of God's actions and our faith in him came at a cost. It came at a high price. You see, that price was that sin had to be punished. In order for God to be right, in order for God to be just, he had to punish sin because he said the wages of sin is death. And death had to come. He couldn't just sweep our sin under the rug. He couldn't just pretend like it didn't happen. And so someone, a human, had to die. But it couldn't be just any human. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus Christ left heaven. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross. And as he died on the cross, God took the wrath against sin that separated man from him, and he poured it out on his own son. And Jesus died so that you and I would not have to. Jesus was separated from his Father so that you and I would never have to be. And God's justice was poured out on the cross. There was a great cost. And when you place your faith in what Christ has done, Paul wrote this in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives but Christ who lives in me, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 
When you place your faith in Christ, what you're saying is, when Christ died on that cross, he was dying for me. When Christ died on that cross, he was paying the penalty for my sin. When Christ died on that cross, my old sin nature died with him there. Does that mean I'll never sin? No, that's not what that means. It means you're no longer a slave to your sin. When you were an unbeliever before you trusted in Christ, you had no choice. You were a slave to sin. But now that you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, you have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are a child of God, empowered by God to overcome that sin in your life. And we ought to understand, I have been crucified with Christ. And so Paul asked this question, if we've died to sin as believers, how is it that we still want to live in sin? If I've died to it, how is it that I still want to live in sin? And then he asks in verse 3, or do you not know that you've been baptized into his death? Do you not realize that your sin nature has been taken away? Do you not realize that, that, that it has been buried with him? Bible puts it this way in another place, behold, all things have passed away. Everything old has passed away and you have become brand new. Baptism is a picture. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us. It's a picture of his death. It is a picture of his burial. And in verse 4, Paul says, we have been buried with him through baptism. So baptism is not only a picture of what Christ has done, it's a picture of what he's done for us. And when someone walks into that baptistry, the symbolism is, I am dying to that old sin nature. And I am being buried. That old nature is gone it's a beautiful picture. But the picture doesn't end with death, does it? This morning when we baptized, we didn't hold them under the water until bubbles started coming up. <laughs> that's, that's illegal. We can't do that. <laughs> Baptism doesn't end in death and burial. There's a resurrection that takes place. And the picture continues. Verse 4, he says, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Oh, make no mistake about it, baptism is a picture of Christ's death. Jesus Christ did die. He died on a cross. They took his dead body and they laid it in a borrowed grave. They covered it in linen and they covered it in spices and they rolled a giant stone in front of it. He was dead. But Jesus told them, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it back up. Jesus said, my father has given me the right to lay down my life and my father has given me my, the right to pick my life back up, to raise it back up. And three days after his death, Jesus did exactly what he claimed he would do. He came back to life. The grave could not hold him. Death could not keep him. And as Paul says, as we are buried with Christ, we will also be raised with him. As we are buried with him, he doesn't leave us buried. He does not leave us dead. He gives us new life. 
The Bible doesn't tell us that in order to be born again, we need to have a better functioning heart. In John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus told Nicodemus, dude, you got to start all over. You need to be born again. You need a new heart. You need a new life. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He takes that old sinful person and he buries it and he gives us a new life. A new life empowered through his son, empowered through his Holy Spirit. We are raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a picture, not only of death, it's a picture of resurrection. It's a picture of new life. I need to move on. Three other things, and these are really quick, I promise. Number two, baptism is a personal pronouncement. It is a personal pronouncement. As we read through the book of Acts, which is the history of the Holy Spirit taking the gospel and spreading it, there's a consistent pattern for baptism. People are confronted with the truth of the gospel, either through preaching or teaching or someone sharing their story with them. People are confronted with the truth of the gospel. They're convicted by the Holy Spirit based on the truth of the gospel. They then are convinced that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the only hope to take their sin away and make them right with God. They place their faith then in Jesus Christ for their salvation, and then and only then are they baptized. This is the consistent pattern that we see in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, at one point, as some were being convicted by the preaching of the disciples, they say, what must we, be, what must we do? We have been pierced to the heart. What must we do? And the disciples say, you must repent and be baptized. What happened next, then, was a very public announcement. When someone had been confronted and convicted and trusted in Jesus Christ, a very public statement needed to be made. As we were announcing baptism last week, Pastor Trent made this statement. He says, faith is a very personal matter, but it was never intended to be kept private. Our faith is a very personal matter. No one can have faith in Christ for you but you. It is a personal decision you must make. It is very personal, but it is never, ever intended in Scripture for it to be private. In fact, it is intended to be very public. Jesus tells us to confess him before others, and that is what baptism does. It is public profession. It is someone standing up before a group of people saying, I want everyone to know that I am a sinner who needs Jesus Christ. I am a sinner who wants to identify with the fact that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. He is my only hope. He is the one. So baptism is someone's personal pronouncement, standing up and saying, I want to be identified with Christ. For us, we do it in a nice, cozy setting like the church. Those in the New Testament, man, they were out in public. They they were out wherever they could find a body of water, and everybody knew who they were. Oftentimes, when they did it, they were ostracized from their families. But it didn't matter because they identified with Christ. Before we baptize here at the church, before we celebrate baptism, what precedes the visible act of baptism is a verbal declaration of salvation. 
You'll notice we, we ask maybe differently each time, but we'll always ask something along the lines of who is Jesus Christ to you? Or have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? And there is a verbal proclamation that must take place. Now know this, before they get there, we have spent time with them privately so that we hear their heart. We understand that they understand to the best of our knowledge, but it is a public proclamation. That's probably not news to you, but thirdly, I want you to see this. Baptism is also a church pronouncement. It's not only a personal pronouncement, it is a church pronouncement. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper were not given to individual believers. The ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper in the New Testament, Christ gave to the local church. He said, I want you to do these things in remembrance of me. Baptize, observe the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus told his disciples. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to the church. And he says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind here on earth will be bound here. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed up in heaven. Now, in order to understand this, the context of this is the great confession of Simon Peter. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And some said, you're this prophet. Some said, you're this prophet. And you remember Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who's in heaven, you are Peter, or you are Simon, but you shall be Peter. You shall be the rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Immediately after that, Jesus tells them, I will give you, the church, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound on hev in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Here's what I think he's saying there. He's giving the church the authority to authenticate the testimony of those claiming to be Christ followers. He is not giving the church the right to confer salvation on anyone or take salvation away from anyone. That's not the church's right. But the church's right and the church's responsibility is when someone comes forward confessing Jesus Christ, it is the church's responsibility to examine their life, to examine their testimony, to see if there is any evidence of an authentic faith that is taking place there because that person is now going out saying, I'm a Christian. And if they go out and they don't know the gospel and they don't represent the gospel and they don't know Jesus Christ well, then they do dishonor to the name of Christ. And it is the church's responsibility to verify the best we can whether someone is a believer or not. Does this make sense? And so it is the responsibility of the church to examine the confession and lives of those who proclaim to be Christ followers. Because again, I go back to what I started with. A Christ follower are to look different than one who isn't a Christ follower. Someone proclaiming the name of Christ ought to talk different, act different, live different than somebody who doesn't. And the church's responsibility is either to verify and say, yes, we believe that this person represents Christ, or for us to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not sure you quite understand just yet. And so when someone stands in the baptistry for baptism, not only are they pronouncing that they are Christ followers, it is the church saying, 
we've examined their lives, we've examined their testimony, we believe that they truly have trusted in Jesus Christ. They represent Christ. You guys are looking at me like I'm teaching you something brand new today. Why is this important? Because the church is the most powerful force on earth. And the church has been given the greatest task in the world to not only represent Christ on earth, but to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Satan would like nothing more than get to tares in with the wheat. To get false believers in with real believers so the false believers can take the real believers off on a tangent and off on a mission that we shouldn't be on and take us away from what we're supposed to be doing. And God says the best you can examine people's lives before you put them out and say these people represent Christ. My final point is this, and we're finished. Baptism is a picture Baptism is a personal pronouncement. Baptism is a church pronouncement. And baptism always, always, always follows belief. Throughout the New Testament, this is the pattern for baptism. It always follows personal belief. It's an act of obedience and a picture of what's already taken place in someone's life. It has never been an act that confers salvation on anyone. It doesn't hold someone until they're ready to make a decision. Baptism is always something that follows belief. The pattern is simple. Gospel proclaimed, people believe, people are baptized. Thus, we refer to baptism as believer's baptism because only believers can be baptized. It's not a sacrament that confers salvation. It's an ordinance that paints a picture of what has already happened. Hi, I'm Bob. Who are you? If somewhere in your thought process, getting Christ into that conversation hasn't occurred, you might be suffering from a bit of an identity crisis. Now, I'm not telling you to beat people over the head with it. I'm not telling you to just be, you know, super spiritual all the time. But how do you identify yourself? How do you see yourself? Is your immediate thing, well, this is what I do for a living. Is your immediate thing, this is what I do for fun. This is who my relationships are. Or as a Christ follower, is your immediate understanding of who you are, that there is a God who created this universe, and at the pinnacle of his universe, he created man you being one of those. And even though you've sinned against that God, he loves you anyway. In fact, he loves you so much he wants to spend forever with you. And in order for that to happen, he's got to deal with your sin. But he loves you so much and he realizes you can't be good enough to deal with your sin that he dealt with it for you. He sent his son to pay the price for your sin. To die in your place. To pay for the cost of your sin. He loves you that much. That's who you are. You're one who God loves. And if you've ever heard that truth and been convicted by that truth and responded to that truth in faith, then you are a child of God, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. That's who you are. 
And everything you do, every act that you take, every word that you say ought to be filtered through that lens of I am a born-again, blessed child of God. Here's my challenge this morning. Some of us maybe have been confronted by the Word of God. We've even been convicted by the Word of God, but we've never professed our faith in Jesus Christ. We've never publicly said, I want people to know that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. He's my only way. And I want to encourage you. In a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to sing a song together. It's a song of celebration. It's a time of commitment. And I wonder if there's somebody here who would say, you know what, Pastor, I I believe that Jesus died for me. I've just never told anybody that I believe that he died for me. I want to live for him, but I've never told anybody that I want to live for him. And you can do that right now. In a minute, we're going to stand, we're going to sing, I'll be down front, and I promise you, this is the safest place you could ever say that. This is the safest room you could ever be in because all of these people love you and that most of them are going, been right there before, understand. So maybe some of us just need to make a public profession. Some of us perhaps need to be baptized biblically. Some of you are Christ followers now. You've trusted in Christ, but you were baptized when you were young, before you truly trusted in Jesus Christ. Maybe you were sprinkled, or maybe someone poured water over your head, and you had nothing to do with that, and I'm not trying to demean anything. I'm not trying to demean what your parents did for you. I'm just saying that as a biblical model of baptism, baptism always follows faith. And maybe some of you have trusted in Christ as an adult, but you've never been baptized. You've never followed in believer's baptism. You've never walked into the waters and said, I want everybody to know that I identify with Christ. I want my baptism to paint a picture of who Christ is and what he's done for me. Every time I've preached on baptism, I promise you there's one or two that come up and say, Pastor, you you were talking about me today. Maybe some of us just need to, to get our baptism in order. That doesn't mean you're saved or you're not saved already. It just means you need to be obedient in following what God's command is. And then some, finally, and I just hope we've been challenged to identify ourselves with Christ. I, I just pray that maybe today you've been just convicted a little bit about how do I identify myself? When I look at myself, when I think about myself, who am I? And does that conversation start with who God says I am? And maybe you just need to spend time in prayer today saying, God, help me to identify myself not as I see me or not as the world sees me. Help me to start identifying myself as how you see me. And let everything in my life flow out of that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the world is going through an identity crisis. Man, they are seeking after so many things and they're not seeking after your truth. As a matter of fact, they are trying to suppress your truth. And when we do that, it leads to all ways of destruction. For there is a way that seems right unto man, but it it, it just leads to death. And so, Father, there is a world that is going through an identity crisis. And, Father, I pray that as Christ followers, we would be able to speak truth into that in a loving manner. But, Father, within the church, there also might be an identity crisis of those who aren't truly identifying ourselves as sinners saved by grace as those that have been called to represent you well to this world. 
And so, Father, as the church in Antioch impacted their community in such a way that people looked at them and said, those people are different. They represent Christ. Father, I pray that this, this city, this community would look at the members of First Baptist Church and say, those people are unique. Those people represent Christ well. And so, Father, I pray for our identity in you. Father, I pray for those that need to make a public profession of faith who've heard the truth of the gospel, who've been convicted by it, but have never publicly said, I believe that Jesus Christ died for me and I want to live for him. Father, I pray that you would give them the courage, let your Holy Spirit continue to draw them. Father, I would even pray that your Holy Spirit would not leave them alone until they proclaim you. Father, let them know that this is a safe place, that we love them and we want to help them in their steps to walking with you. Father, thank you for those that were baptized this morning for their testimony to our church. And Father, I pray if there are those that need to be baptized, that they would step forward and say, I want to be the next one to stand up and say, I identify with Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We couldn't love you if you hadn't loved us first. Thank you for showing us what love is. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're just going to sing. And if God's Holy Spirit has compelled you to respond this morning, we pray that you would do that. Any folks down here to pray with you? Let's sing to celebrate. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He that
I pray that maybe uh, you learned something about baptism. Maybe you didn't know before, or maybe you were just encouraged knowing those things and just being reinforced with those. Come back next week, Lord's Supper. We'll learn how we identify with Christ through his body and his blood as we look forward to his return. God bless you guys. So great to see you. Guests stop by the guest reception. College students, so good to have you back. Stay for lunch and Bible study today. Have a great week. Let's go represent Christ well. Oh